Welcome to episode 287 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung from Austin, Texas, and I'm excited to welcome a guest to today's show, two-time Olympian and my co-host at the Clean Sport Collective podcast, Kara Goucher, will be joining, and we're going to be talking about goal setting, dreaming big, and what to do with the broken hearts that might come on the other side of those two things. This podcast discussion was was inspired by a tweet from Kara that I'll share when she comes on and I'll share in the show notes. But the basic premise of this one is that any broken heart you might have from this sport is worth it. But we're going to be talking about all the components of that with Kara. And I want to be able to play that discussion uninterrupted. So I've got a few things to start. First of all, as is often the case when I have somebody like Kara on, I get a lot of new listeners to the show. So if this is your first time listening, welcome. This podcast is all about how to be your best and fastest self as a runner. And I go through all the training components of that in all of my episodes. So you can go back and listen. If you want to find one to listen to that summarizes all it all, I would go back to episode 256, where I give a pretty good overview of my coaching philosophy. But then obviously I break those things down in a lot of detail in other episodes as we're approaching my 300th episode. And then also I wanted to let you know that I've got two sponsors for this episode and I'm going to get the offers out of the way again so I can play that conversation with Kara uninterrupted. First of all, I have to thank Athletic Greens for coming on as a sponsor, something I've been using now for about a month. Athletic Greens is essentially a multivitamin on steroids. It's got 75 high quality vitamins, minerals. It's made from whole sourced ingredients. It's got probiotics and adaptogens as well as a superfood complex. So it really is a way to start your day with everything you need to perform. Personally, I've been, again, taking taking it for about a month. I typically drink it after my workout before I get my breakfast in. So it's the way that I'm starting my day. And I've found that it's working for me. I recently had my micronutrient levels checked and was in the normal range on everything, which hasn't always been the case for me. So it's good to see all of that panning out. This is a product that will make sure you get all of those vitamins and nutrients you need for your running performance. It also supports better sleep quality and recovery, as well as mental clarity and alertness. All of that for less than $3 a day. Take it in the morning to start your day. And you are investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance to start the day the right way. I've got an offer for you. To make it easy, Athletic Creams is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your purchase so you can take it with you on the go. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash running rogue to get that offer. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash running rogue to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So check it out. I also want to give a shout out to my other sponsor for this episode, Zencaster. They are a company that I've been working with using their product actually for a long time. They provide essentially remote recording services for podcasters and other content creators so that you can record and have high quality sound and video without having bandwidth issues, or even if you are having bandwidth issues, two different ways you can work with Zencaster. One is if you want to use their service and their product, which I use for many of my interviews, particularly 
To do that, you can go to zen.ai forward slash rogue30, zen.ai forward slash rogue30 for 30% off their product for the first three months so that you can share your story and do it in a high quality way. So again, zen.ai forward slash rogue30 for 30% off your first three months with the product. Or if you'd like to advertise with the podcasters and other content creators that use Zencaster as a platform, you can access their ad platform by going to zen.ai forward slash running rogue in order to sponsor shows that might be on the Zencaster platform and share the story of your business. So go to zen.ai forward slash running rogue, fill out the contact information there and Zencaster will get back to you. So those are a couple of ways to support those that support me. Thank you again to Athletic Greens and Zencaster for sponsoring this episode. Okay, that's all I have for intro items. Now I want to jump into my conversation with Kara. So without further ado, here we go with Kara Goucher. Welcome, Kara Goucher, to the Running Rogue podcast. Kara, it's awesome to have you back on. You've been on many times at this point. How are you doing? I'm doing good. But Chris, it's weird to not be like a co-host with you. So I feel I weird know. like, well, oh, Chris has the questions. I don't. <laughs> That's true. And now, <laughs> see, now you've already brought it up. People are already wondering what's happening with the Clean Sport podcast, but we will bring it back soon enough in some form. But yes, well, I kind of think of this as like co-hosting. I want to have a conversation with you. I don't want to do this as a Q&A because I think both of both you and I have perspectives on this topic that I think can contribute to the discussion. But we're going to talk about a tweet that you sent last week that I thought was really powerful. I want to know in a second what the impetus was for this tweet, but I'm going to read it just for those that didn't see it and I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. But you said, one of life's biggest lessons, you don't always get what you want. You can do everything right and still fall short, but usually even in the pain, the journey was still worth taking. This is me finishing fourth in the 2016 Olympic trials marathon. Only the top three moved on to the Olympics. Was it awful? Yes, but I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Sometimes a broken heart is better than being too afraid to try. Sometimes a broken heart is better than being too afraid to try. I love that last line. Where did that come from? I think, you know, I, my running hasn't been so great lately. I had Botox and it's worn off. And I mean, we're talking about it now, but I'm going in tomorrow to try again. And, you know, I think I've been frustrated with that, with like taking a step back and then like seeing my son go through some struggles recently. And I was just thinking about how, like, man, like sometimes you just do everything perfectly right. And you still it doesn't go the way you want or the way you imagine. And then of course I started thinking about 2016. Um, and also just like after watching world champs, I'm always thinking about, you know, things that happened in my career. So yeah, it was just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share this and see <laughs> if people can relate to this. And it seemed like people could. Yeah, it was a good response. It's a powerful sentiment. And one of the things I was having a conversation the other day with a runner that I coach, and we were just talking about how it's a privilege to feel, Mm -hmm. you know, to be able to have those emotions at the time we were talking about it in the context of pain of suffering through a long endurance event and how, while that can be hard and challenging, it's also something you sign up for and you get to do. And there's a lot of magic and power that comes on the other side of that. 
And so in all of these endeavors, regardless of what you're feeling, whether it be pain or disappointment or a, a sense of failure or whatever it may be, it's a, it's a privilege to have those feelings because yeah. it's like, it's an indication that you're alive in some ways. I was just about to say that. I was like, I'm just about to say that when you can feel that sadness, that pain, whatever, I really feel like that's when I know I'm alive. Like I'm really living, you know, I feel, you know, me, we're good friends. I am like the highest of the high and the lowest of the low. And I feel all of it. And I used to like, not like that about myself because I know people in my life that are very even keeled and I'm definitely not, but I also have grown to really love that about myself because I feel like I'm really alive. I feel like I really am feeling what is happening in my life. And, you know, sometimes it's, horrible. Like that day back in 2016 was one of the worst days of my life. But I would honestly, even knowing I get forth, I I would do it again because the preparation, the time of my life, the peace of knowing that I was going to give it everything I had and I wouldn't ever have to question it. Like that was all worth it to me. Yeah. So that's the centerpiece of our discussion, your team and everything that comes (laughs) off of it. I do want to get back to 2016, but I want to go back because I want to take this through the conversation because it all starts with having a goal, having a dream, right? You wanted to be a three-time Olympian. You've had other goals in your career, obviously. Some you've achieved, some you haven't, but it starts there, figuring out how to set goals, set the right goals and then sharing them and so forth. So I want to talk about that full progression with starting with a question to you. Do you remember in sport, whether it be running or another sport, the first time you set a goal that you can remember? Yeah, actually, probably in dancing, I set the goal to get the part, the lead role and the nutcracker to be Clara, I think was her name. And I did not get it. (laughs) <laughs> and it was like devastating because I like rehearsed and rehearsed and practiced and practiced and I didn't get the part. And I was told, try again next year. It was really close between you and someone else. And it was like devastating. Kara Goucher, the dancer. <laughs> I mean, I've seen you dance, yes. but I didn't know you were in formal dance training. Yeah. Yeah. So was, how, old like, were you? I, how old were you then? So I started when I was like four, probably, and this would have been in middle school. So probably like seventh grade, I would say. Okay. Um, it was when I was first starting running organized as well. It was all around the same time. And I danced until I, my, through my, ju- my uh, sophomore year of high school and I was a competitive dancer. And then it was like, I made it to Foot Locker my sophomore year and Foot Locker was the same weekend as one of our really big competitions. And I was just realizing they were going to collide. But um, yeah, dancing was actually like my first, like, like real love, which is so funny because I think I'm so good, but I go back and watch <laughs> movies and I was like, so bad. But yeah. You were young, you were young and learning. Yeah. <laughs> so did that goal come just from you? Where, what was the impetus for it? Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a competitiveness. I do remember the first time that I realized I was competitive, which would have been a few years earlier when I was in elementary school. And, um, it was when, when my mom was married and we had six kids in the van and we're driving across the country and no one would play 
clue with me, travel clue. <laughs> and we're in a van with six kids and I'm like, no, no one, you know, and my mom's like, Kara, let it go. And then my, my stepbrother goes, nobody likes to play with you because you you're too competitive. <laughs> I was like, what, you know? Um, wow. and so then I was like, Oh, is that a bad thing? But so that's when I really realized I was competitive. And so for instance, this thing with the dancing thing, there was something on the line, someone was going to be the best, like, that's how you're going to get that role. And so um, and so it's a little bit of competitiveness. Like I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the one that got that role. And so, but I didn't, I did not <laughs> get that role. <laughs> Do you remember the feelings you had then? Oh yeah. I remember like, I, I felt like, first of all, super, super jealous of Mandy Proudlock who got the role. <laughs> um, and then, and like, just kind of this jealousy of like, oh, I wanted that to be me so bad. And I like worked so hard and I practiced in my bedroom. And like, I'm so, I just like really a lot of envy that I didn't get to have that. And I was like, like, so sad, you know, yeah. like so sad because I had envisioned it in my head. And then I was only going to be in the background. I didn't get to be front and center. <laughs> Obviously, you're well removed from that and dancing now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but how do you think back on that? You know, was that a formative failure for you? Yeah, probably. I mean, it ate at me for a really long time. Like even like months later, when we were both competing together on the same dance routine, I'd always look at her and be like jealous still, you know? So I think it it just bothered me. And I think that's kind of how it is, right? When you really want something, you work really hard for it, you don't get it. You're like, hey, what? And, but it also was like, things moved on, you know, like the next thing I know we were competing together. The next thing I knew I was running track and falling in love with that and really seeing that I had some ability there. And so, you know, I moved on from it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was the first goal you set that you got? That's such a good question. I think winning the city championship in seventh grade in cross country. Um, we, I ran for my middle school in seventh grade for the cross country team. And then I switched to the high school in the spring, but I wanted to win the city championship so bad. Like my first race, it's like, I had run before that. I started running when I was six, actually, but like my first actual cross country race, I got beat by someone that sprinted and walked and sprinted and walked. And I remember being like, I'm going to beat her at the last race of the year. Like, I'm not going to let that girl. I remember asking my coach, did she cheat? And he was like, no, Kara, it's just however you get from there to, you know, A to B, the fastest one wins. You know? Walking um, is cheating? Yeah, Come I was on. like, she's walking, you know, like that can't, that can't count. Um, and so I set the goal that I would win the city championship. And so I think we had like six races culminating with the city championship. And then I did win. Thank you. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> It's funny. Yeah. I was thinking about this question for me and I think I was probably maybe slightly older, but I remember setting a, a goal with teammates. I was a soccer player growing up. I didn't run until later in life. And, and we set a goal. I was a defender to have a season where we didn't allow any goals in our league play. And I remember, you know, working, I mean, it was four of us as defenders. We were kind of in it together. We had a, we already had a good rapport. We'd been playing together for several years. And so we did, we got, we got to the last game of the season, not having let in a goal. We had shutouts all the way through. I should add our goalkeeper, Cody, to the mix too. He was also in on this goal. And then in the last game of the league 
play, we gave up a goal. <laughs> and I remember, and we actually won the game. So that was a good consolation. But I remember being so mad about it because, you know, we made it, it was like eight games, you know, in this half a season, essentially in the league play where we'd set that goal and we didn't get it. And we were, we were so pissed. I know, but I think when you're younger, you think of goals as something that has to be achieved. I certainly did. It was like, I, I have to run this time or I have to win this race. That's my goal. That's my goal to get straight A's. And then I remember I got a B and I was like at a cross country crying because I got a B, but it was so, it was so like definite, like you either get it or you fail. I think as you start to grow up, you start to realize like, oh, a goal doesn't have to be something that's completely out of reach. You know, it's you work your way towards it. And sometimes there's like smaller goals to even get to. Like, I wanted to be Olympian. I'm in eighth grade. Like, I'm not going to the Olympics. Right. So how am I going to get there? It's like all these literally 20 year step to get me there. So but I think when you're younger, you don't realize that it's like you either got it or you're a failure. And There's like right. no in between. Right. Yeah. Now in my wisdom, it's like you, you get it or you learn. Right. And then you keep doing it again. So then on that, so as you think about the evolution of your goal setting, as you get older, how did it change? How did it evolve? What did you learn? Well, I did. I was nervous about setting goals because I didn't want to be disappointed. I remember my senior year, I was like, no, I'm setting goals. I still have it. I printed out. So I had run 1048 maybe 1048 as a freshman in the two mile and I had run five minutes flat. And so in the 1600 and, and then I never got any faster. And so my senior, I was like, this is it. And I had it up on my wall. I still have it. 1040, 457, not even close on either of them. Right. And it, I was like, well, that's why I don't set goals, you know, because I'm like state champion. I'm still disappointed, you know? And so it, it really evolved throughout college, I think, like running for Mark Wetmore and seeing, thinking about progression, thinking about long-term goals, like, no, you're not going to win nationals this year, but maybe if you make, do all these things by the time you're a junior, it's like a realistic thing that you could be fighting to win an NCAA title. And so I owe a lot of that, I think, to Wetmore for like breaking it down for me and showing like, there's going to be goals that you don't get, but that doesn't mean like the dream is dead just means now we need to like refigure what did we learn and go from there. Yeah. It's an interesting lesson. I was talking about it on a recent episode where I was talking about running and longevity and a common theme I see with athletes. I coach, especially the younger ones, but it can happen in anybody that comes to me at any age, but they'll, they'll want something and they want it now, (laughs) you know, or within one or two seasons of training versus thinking, okay, well, that's the goal. How is the prevent, potential progression look as you get to that. And that might mean two years, three years, five years. I mean, shoot this sport, if you can think about it in that long chunks, if you really, you know, are thinking about it long-term. So that is a hard lesson, especially in a world where we want things yesterday. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's so hard. And I think our sport of all sports, it really pays to be like a planner and a patient athlete, but it's so hard, you know, like I remember my freshman year, I made it to NCAA cross country. And this was back when like they took a lot more teams because now they consider the regional meet the first round of the NCAA championships. So they had like way more people at the national meet. I beat like four people. I'm not kidding. (laughs) I finished, I've looked it up for other people, 180th or 190th. 
four, only four people behind me. That's it. <laughs> and, you know, I remember Joanna Dieter, who I ran with in high school, who ran for, I believe, Eden Prairie. She got third that day. And I was like, how did this just happen? How is she already there? You know, and I'm like kicking to beat three people, you know? And so <laughs> it was like a harsh lesson early on of like, everybody's journey is different. And, you know, but you know, what's crazy is I did go home and I, my sister was like, Oh, you know, and I'm like, no, I'm going to win that. I'm going to win it when I'm a senior, I'm going to win it in 1999. And I didn't win it in 1999, but because like, that's because I redshirted and I did end up winning in my senior year. So it's like, I, you can go from literally one of the worst people there to the best. You just have to have like a little bit of psycho and you have to like, keep dreaming and keep it alive you know did you just say a little bit of psycho you have to have a little bit i mean my sister will tell what's the right dosage of psycho yeah well my sister will tell this story back to me and she'll be like you were so like unreasonable right you know you just got 190 i just got sec or fourth to last yeah and you're gonna come back from that and be like oh of course yeah and so like i think you need a little bit of like delusion but also within reality. I mean, like if I wasn't improving dramatically by the next year, obviously I'm probably not going to win, but you know, what's funny is I was like, things went exactly the plan. The next year I got 56. <laughs> like, look at me. <laughs> Moving on up. I mean, with that trajectory. Yeah. And I mean, it was like, still, I knew it was a pipe dream. I knew it was, but I was what like, did, look how much I improved. If I do that again next year, I'm in the running, you know? What did Wetmore think about that? Goal? Wetmore did not know that I thought I was going to win. I would never tell him that. No, but no. Uh, but th- over the next season, I started to run a lot wet- better, even on the track. And that's when I started to say like, I, do you think I could win a championship? Like kind of timidly. And he was like, yes, I do. But not back then. No, that was just like my own little psycho, you know, I think I'm going to win. <laughs> and he didn't, I mean, you could ask him, he'd be like, no, the first year he did not think I was going to be a NCAA champion. He was like, maybe this girl will score for us, but that's about where it's going to tap out. Interesting. But you did share with your sister and your family. So you shared yeah. it a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And they were like, okay, okay, Kara. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were always so nice. Yeah, okay. You know, but so. Yeah. So what do you think you need to have that little bit of psycho? Because, you know, there's, I don't know, like it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because there are are people that come to me and they say, you know, they want big goals like that and they've got that little bit of psycho and then it's my job to figure out how to get them there and kind of attach the process to that dream. But there's other people and it's probably more common the other side of it, which they come to me and they'll give me some, incremental goal that based on what I know as a coach, I'm like, well, of course you're going to get that, you know, like that's easy. So let's think a little bit bigger than that. So finding that right balance of just enough psycho to make it attainable, but not too conservative where you can easily get it. How do you do that? And also not so psycho that it's unrealistic. Like I just told you, I didn't tell what more of that because at some level I knew (laughs) this is crazy. this is crazy. You know what I mean? So I'm not going to go to Mark and be like, okay, I just got 190th. How do I get to first? Like (laughs) there's some, even though I would say that to my family at some level, I was like, yeah, nah, I'm going to wait a little bit before I talk to him about that. You know, I think it's like, 
The thing about setting a big goal or a big dream is that just what happened to me in 2016 is that it's very likely that it will not happen. And so then is it worth the emotion, the effort, the dreaming, knowing that the odds of you getting it are are like, they aren't as big. So like, you have to find the space of like, do I just want to set little goals and keep riding that and keep moving up the ladder? Or do I want to set a pie and sky goal and then set all these, you know, long-term goals to get there? And that's kind of like where I like to like to land is like, look, if I, if my goal is to run 18 minutes in the 5k and I go out my first one around 1801, okay, yeah, like maybe we should lower the goal a little bit. And and some people just feel more comfortable doing it in small chunks as they go. They don't want to look too far ahead. Um, but I think that if you have a big dream, you have to like, you have to let it live, you know? And you yeah. have to always be swinging for the fences here and there to get there. Yeah, and I think about it. I, I think I would rather somebody dream too big than too small as a coach. I don't know what you yeah. think about that. I mean, it's yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm not a coach. I've only coached a few people. I, I I'm thinking as we're talking because I've helped out an athlete that was like totally unrealistic with the time frame and the effort. And I'm thinking, how do I tell this person? Let's have a different goal, you know. Right. Um, and but they were so excited, and so in the end, we I didn't talk to them about changing it, and then they fell short, and they were devastated. And I was like, I mean, we like right. I knew. based on the workouts, yeah. we knew, but I didn't want to crush that. So it's interesting as a coach. I think it could be it can. I mean, and I've only coached like four or five people, so I don't. You coach so many people, <laughs> it's hard. I feel like at that point, you really have to know the athlete and know what motivates them and know how to talk to them. Right. I mean, yeah, you do. You have to get to know them. And for me, I would just be honest. Like, and in fact, I've had those conversations. In fact, I remember this would have been many years ago, but this person came to me and said, I want to qualify for Boston by this time frame. And I knew that was unrealistic. And so I told her that in as gentle way as I could. She didn't like that at all and ended up going with somebody else but of course didn't get that goal. Right. And so you know, even I've had that, like, yeah, for me, I'm just going to be honest. Yeah. And that's good though. I wanted to run around 235 in 2018 in a marathon. I wanted to run CIM and Mark and Heather, like three weeks into workouts were like, you need another month, pick a different marathon, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I ended up moving it to Houston, which was gave me like another month or something, but it was harsh to hear, but also in my gut, I knew it. I was like, I, I'm not hitting workouts yet that indicate that. And I, I know that I need more time to get there. So it can hurt your feelings, but it can also like, but they weren't saying, I don't believe you can do it. They right. were just saying, I don't believe you can do it in this magical time frame that you just came to us with. Hey, it's September. I want to run 235 in December. They're like, that's not going to happen. You know? Yeah. So it's tough to be a coach and it's, and it's also tough to hear those things. I remember going home that night and telling Adam, like, screw them. They don't know how hard I work, you know? And then the next day I was like, they're right. They're totally yeah. right. I'm not going to be ready at the beginning of December to do an effort like this. Yeah. It's a hard balance conveying both the belief that you know, they can do it, but also the real, the reality of, look, if we follow the process the right way, this isn't going to happen in the time frame you want. And that can be sometimes a hard message to deliver, but, but that requires building trust and all, you know, all the things that good coaches do. 
talk about your goal process. Like once you had that dream, what would you do with it? Would you write it down? Would you post it somewhere? How would you take it to then action? I never posted a goal after that senior year of high school where I had that thing above my bed. I saw it every freaking day and I didn't get it. I didn't get either of the times and it like crushed me. Right. And and it like crushed my feeling about goals. So from then on, when I would set a goal, it would be small, usually discussed between Adam and myself or my coach and myself. The only time I, that I can really think of as a professional athlete where I like really stated my goal was Boston 2009 when I was like, I want to win. And that ended up being a double-edged sword in itself because it was like, there was so much media hype because I wanted to win. And then when I didn't, it was like, not only that I feel like I let myself down, I felt like I let down all these people who I tricked into thinking I was going to win Boston. You know what I mean? Like, that's how I felt. Like I tricked all these people into thinking I was good enough. And it turns out I'm not. And so, so I never, I'm not really like a big, but everybody's different. Right. And that's the thing, like Sarah Hall writes it on her mirror. That works for her. Other people announce stuff that works for them. For me, it was like going to Wetmore. I want to make the 2016 Olympic team. This is it. This is the last thing I want out of my career. And then it would be like going back. Okay. Well, it's 2014 and you just, you know, got a sacral stress fracture. So, you know, (laughs) this is, we're going to have to use every inch we have of 2015 to make this happen. And then just setting all these goals throughout 2015, which some were great. I nailed and some I didn't. I mean, like he was like, you need to be able to run under 15, 20 in the 5k to be able to make this team. And so I ran a track season and all I ran was 15, 40 something, you know? Um, so I didn't hit every goal along the way, but once I started to get into a groove and I found my fitness and I started to believe more, then I started to click off these little goals. One of the other goals was to break 70 minutes before the trials, which I didn't do either. Right. So, yeah. So, but it wasn't like a failure. It was like, Oh, that course, you know, like that course was a lot harder than we thought it was going to be, you know, and you ran consistent, you know, so it's like, then when you didn't meet the goal, it'd be like, well, should I be depressed and just give up? Or is there a reason why we set the goal a little too high? And like, we'd sit down, look, your, your times are really consistent. We just had that. I don't know if anyone's ever run the San Antonio half marathon, but it has a, well, it used to, it doesn't have it anymore, but it used to have this huge climb through this college campus. And th- right there, you lost 30 seconds, you know? So it's, it's being yeah. able to set these goals, work towards them, but also if you don't hit them, just throwing everything out. Well, now I can't do that. You know, it's right. like, okay, well, what do I need to do differently? I didn't meet this goal. How do I need to change to get that to set me up to do this. Yeah. So going digging in on the sharing. So you said you would share with Adam with your coaches and that was and your family. And my family. Yeah. You. So that was your circle. I and I do think, you know, I get this question a fair amount where people are like, should I share it? You know, should I talk about my goal? And I think there's two sides. One is you don't want to gratuitously share it. I, I don't think telling everybody that, you know, that breeze around you is the right approach, especially those that don't know you well enough or know the sport well enough or know the goal well enough to give support. But I do think pulling in that circle, whatever it is, is important so that you have that support and you know who you can count on as you ride those waves of getting it or not getting it. And I think sometimes people skew too far one way or the other where they're sharing it with everybody and it's sort of letting it all out to the world or 
they shut it down and they keep it close, too close to the vest where they're not allowing that space for somebody to come in and help them, lift them up, you know, be there when to cheer or celebrate when they get it or to help them when, you know, work through failure when they don't. So to me, it's all about that right balance. And that's an individual decision and question, but I think important to have that support network. For sure. And especially if you train with other people, they can hold you accountable when you're having a rough day. You know, they can pull you through those days and help you stay on the pace or help you still just leave that effort out there. So I totally agree with you. It's like finding the people that you can trust with it, who are going to kind of hold you accountable or check in on you or be there for you when you get it or you don't, or things aren't going the way you wanted. But yeah, you don't need like a megaphone. Hello, (laughs) you know, I mean, you can, everyone's different, but they're not going to really help you in that journey. Yeah. On the, yeah. On the group context, I also like people to think about it as, as your, your opportunity to not only take that support, but also to inspire others in the group. You know, we have group-based training here at Rogue and, and people, I think sometimes think about sharing their goal in that context as negative accountability. Like people will be disappointed in me if I tell them what I want and I don't get it, but that never is the way it works, right? People don't, in our community, they know how it is that sometimes you get it. Sometimes you don't, they're always there for you no matter what. But then also on the flip side, they're going to be the ones that are inspired. Look at that race that she ran, whether it goes well or not, they're going to see that effort and somebody putting it all online and say, man, I want to do that same thing and then go take that to their race and it pays forward. And then eventually that comes back to you too, because you'll be inspired by somebody else. So that's the part of the equation that I think sometimes people forget, you know, they're framing it on the negative. Like, what if I don't get it? What if people are disappointed versus what if I inspire someone else? Yeah. I love that thing you said about the negative thing. Cause I think that's how I felt about goals for a while after that year of not getting them. Like, why would I set a goal only to be disappointed? Why would I tell people I'm trying to do this only just have them see me fail? But the reality is like we talked about, like, it's not really, even though it is about that day and what you do on that day, it really isn't, right? Like we all know that's not really what it's about. It's about like the, how you got there, the different chapters in the lead up to it, what you fought through, what you overcame, you know? And that's the beauty of running is that we can all have different goals and sometimes we get them, sometimes we don't, but we all can really relate to that person that puts their heart out there and goes for something. And then that makes us want to do that too. Yeah. One of, I mean, the other thing that's different for you on this topic of sharing is that oftentimes, no matter what, you had a built-in expectation on a start line, right? Even if you hadn't said, I want to win Boston in 2009, people would have expected it of you and been talking about it and asking you, Kara, you're going to win. You're going to be the first American to win since 1980, whatever it was when Lisa Rainsberger won. And so that was an expectation that was just there until Des won in 2018. So, you know, that is a little bit of a difference for you is people putting expectations on you and you having to then do something with it, whether it was your goal or not. So how did you deal with that, with people's expectations that were external to your own goal setting? You know, sometimes I dealt with it well, and sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I did feel a lot of pressure and I did feel like, running was getting away from me. Like it wasn't mine. It was like, I was worrying about all these other people and what they believed I could do. And they believed I could do this. So I need to do this. And then other times it would be like, 
honestly, depending on how well my, um, like therapy was going, like, or my like mental training stuff, like other times I'd be like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to use their energy because they believe and they believe for a reason. And I'm going to, you know, you use that support and ride that support through the tough times of the race. And so it really was kind of like, where am I mentally in my mental game? But it can feel like a lot of pressure, but I would always try to remind myself if they're, if they want this for me, it's only because they really believe and like they, and so that's not a bad thing. Like, don't be like, I'm going to let them down. I'm not going to do this. Just think like, wow, how cool that all these people believe I have the ability to pull that off. It's easier said than done though, because sometimes (laughs) I did feel like crushed under the weight of expectation. I felt like unless I win, win this, it's going to be a disappointment at some level. And that's a lot, you know, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. How do you think back on 2009? Now you got third, you made the race, you know, you made the push in the final 10 K to, to break that race open. You know, everybody was strung out behind you and just dropping off one by one until the very end when you got beat by two other athletes that just had a better finish, even though you really made the race disappointing in a sense, but you're still on the podium at Boston how do you think about it now? Do you think about it fondly? Are the emotions mixed? What What are the feelings? Honestly, I feel sad because mm. I'm so crying. It's okay. I've never watched any footage of that race. I probably never will. And my the people in my circle at that time let me know I had failed. It wasn't like, hey, you left your heart out there. What All the nice things you just said. You made the race. None of that. I wasn't hearing any of that, you know? Mm. And um, it was just like, I made this really bad mistake. And I did tech, according to my team, I had, there was a race plan and I didn't follow it. And, um, and it was on me and it was like a really horrible experience for me. Like mm. it just was so dark. And I remember like talking to my grandpa about it and he was like, you have to let it go. Like, what do you think would have happened if you had won? Like, like there'd be world peace and you'd be happy <laughs> every day forever. Like you right. gave your best, you know? But I, I've never, ever watched any footage of that. But I will say, as I've gotten older and more removed from it, and I, you know, you and I become friends, I, and other people will say things like that to me, like, oh, I love that race. It's exciting. I'm, like, more at peace with it. But it, it was a wake-up call for me because I was really realizing I was losing control of, like, even wanting to run. Mm. You know, like, the failure was so steep that it it was just like, I don't, it was almost like crippling. Like, how can I even like, I, I, how am I going to, I remember like telling Alberto, I will go run London in six days. I will fix this. Like, like using language like that, instead of being like, Hey, I, it's disappointing. I might've made a few tactical errors at the end of the day. I did the best I could. And you know, that sucks. I didn't win, move on, set a new goal. It wasn't like that at all. So I look back with a lot more grace, but honestly, I don't really look back at it that much because I still cry when I talk about mm. it. That sucks. I mean, just straight up, right? Because you finished third at Boston. I mean, <laughs> you ran an amazing race and you didn't do anything wrong, right? You put it all out there, literally. And I remember the emotion at the end from you. And it was just honestly the wrong people around you that made you feel that way. I'm sure you would yeah. have felt heartbroken and fe- I'm sure you would have felt failure, right? I mean, anytime we're that close to something we stay, we stay that we wanted, we, you know, we feel that 
sadness, that frustration, that anger at yourself, you, know, you would have beat yourself up in all the ways, right? You would have felt all the feels, but to have people essentially telling you the wrong things didn't really make it fair for you to process that in a way that would be healthy. Yeah. And when I look back on it, that's where I feel like I'm more forgiving with myself. Like people were so nice to me that day and just my, my circle, it was a huge disappointment and there was a lot on the line and there's was a lot of belief that this was going to happen and it didn't happen. And it just, you know, for the first time in my life, I was being told what was lost because I didn't perform. And like I said, that's when I really started to feel like, I don't know if I even like this anymore. You know, like I, I feel bad now because you're telling me all of the things that were supposed to happen that now can't happen. And that's like, I, how do I fix this? I, ha I have right. to do, I have to do something even bigger. So that's why I decided to run world champs. Like, well, if I win world champs, then I'll fix all the Boston stuff. Um, wow. And then I didn't win world champs. I got 10th and had a had a rough day. And that, and it was just like, I, it just was a bad spiral and it ended in a really good thing, which was that I was like, I need a break from this. I cannot keep going. I've run three marathons in nine months. It's not, it's not enough. And there's got to be more to life than this. And then, yeah. you know, I got pregnant. And it would ultimately be a domino in pushing you away from that team. Yes. Yep. But there's a lesson that I was inter interestingly, I was at a coach's meeting for my oldest son who plays soccer. He's a goalkeeper and he's on this really competitive travel team that's just moved up to this regional league. And they're really excited about the fact that they're going to be playing at this higher level and we're going to be traveling to Oklahoma and Dallas and Houston and all these places, which is, you know, exciting, but also terrifying at some level for me as a father to a 13 year old who is by the way, very competitive. I think we've had similar conversations in our car with him about him wanting to play a game and people being like, you're not fun to play. <laughs> so, I, so it's that kind of mentality from him, but I'm also worried for him that, it's going to be too much at that age. And of course, doing all the things I can to make sure he's doing multiple sports and, you know, that we keep the right balance of fun and competitiveness and so forth. But the coach stood up and was talking about, you know, a lot of stuff about the year. But one of the things that he said was, he's like, all I really care about is that they show up and that they play their hardest. And I want them to make mistakes because that's a part of learning. And it was just, it was refreshing to hear that. And this is a guy who's coached at the collegiate level. He's coached at pretty high levels in, in the sport of soccer and at the youth level. And so I didn't know what to expect. He's a new coach for them this year. I'm like, is he, you know, is he going to be super aggro? Like, how is he going to approach them in terms of this step up in league? And he's like, I just want them to show up and play their hardest. And that was very relieving. <laughs> you know, it was a very a big relief for me to hear because that's the way it should be at that age, but really it should be that at kind of every age. Yeah. Because all that really matters when you're swinging for a goal is that you gave it everything you had. Like that's all that really matters. And when I think about my experiences of failure, of not getting the thing that I wanted, especially in running, most of them, I think back on fondly, you know, they're mixed emotions, obviously, but mostly fondly because I can think back and think, man, I gave everything on that day and it just wasn't my day. And I've also was surrounded by people that were telling me the same thing and that was all reinforced. So even in the failure, I still think back pretty fondly on most of those bad, those bad experiences where I didn't get my goal. 
And, uh, and in your case, it'd probably be the same if it wasn't for the wrong people telling you the wrong things to think about and focus on. And that's sad. Yeah. I mean, that's like competitive sport, right? Like there's only three places that get a medal at the Olympics or the world championships. And of course you're aiming and dreaming of being there, but the majority of you aren't going to get that. The majority of the Olympians ran the best race of their lives and got 10th. Right. So it's, it's a hard, I, I notice this a lot. Like I like to move away from setting goals of place with athletes or with my son or whoever, and focus more on personal improvement because you can run the best race of your life, but four other people have the best race of theirs. And does that diminish the fact that you just ran the best race of your life? It shouldn't, but it did. It felt that way for me at times when I was younger. And I, I see it all the time. Like it's, it's okay to wish to win. It's okay. That's my goal. But then you also need to be okay with, I ran a flawless race and it, I just didn't end up in that top three. Right. So it's being able to like sort of navigate and be like you said, show up and you did the best you could. That's really all you can ever ask for. Or in the case of adult runners who may not be running for place. I mean, you show up at the marathon and the weather's 80 degrees 85% humidity and 20 mile an hour winds like Chicago marathon last fall. And, you know, every potential time goal you might've thought about is thrown out the window because physics and chemistry just won't allow right. you to run the paces you'd hope for. And yet sometimes it's really hard for people to process that it was out of their control. They gave their best in spite of the conditions. And yeah, they may have been 15 minutes off of their time or 20 minutes or whatever number, but yet they did everything they could. You right. Know, and I think that's like, that in context. It is hard, but that's like one of the things like a good coach will teach you is you control the controllables, right? Like you can't control the weather. I mean, look when Des won Boston, was anybody predicting that <laughs> weather? No, but it was like, that's it. That's what we were given, right? So it's it's hard, especially in a sport like ours where there's so much preparation that goes into that one day. It's hard to be like, well, I'll just fight through the weather, you know, even though we, we know that can't actually happen. Like when I ran New York in 2014, headwind almost the entire way. And Mark was like, well, I think you're ready to run around 228, but I'm, I don't know now with this wind. And I'm like, you know, he was like, please just hang back and go with the second pack. And I was like, no, I'm just going to push my way through on will. Well, what happened? I freaking died like <laughs> nobody's business at mile 18. I mean, like I was seeing things, right? So it's like, if I would have been like, okay, I'm not going to run that time. And that stinks because I know I'm ready to run that. And I want to prove that I can run that. But I'm just going to now be smart and see what happens. You know, it would have been a much better day than the way I ran it, which was like, no, I'll just overcome it. You can't. There's some things that like physiologically are happening that you yeah. have to adjust for. Yeah, I want to get back to talking about New York because that was a disappointing day for you. I remember horrible, you being yeah. very, very emotional <laughs> at that finish line. And anyway, that's that's a different story. But on the positive side, before we get there, what talk talk to me about the when you think about setting goals in the context of your professional running career, what's one that you set that you got that you're most proud of? Um, making an Olympic team. Okay. No, it was like probably the biggest goal I ever had. Longest goal I ever had. 
to make, and I didn't make the team until a few days before my 30th birthday. So it, yeah, making an Olympic team was the biggest, loftiest, longest goal I ever had. So in 08, at those trials, that was when you're running against Amy Yoder Begley and mm-hmm. Lane was in that race mm-hmm. or the 10 K at least. I don't remember the 5k team, but how did, how did that feel getting it? Yeah. It's actually funny that you mentioned both races. Cause for the 10 K it felt like delirium. Like I'd finally accomplished this thing. My family was there. It seemed like it had, was a goal I had had since I was a child. And at times it seems so funny, like you're never going to make it, you know? Um, but then in the 5,000, I actually set the goal that I wanted to win. I wanted to be Olympic trials champion. So we actually switched our strategy, um, like just a couple days before. So instead of going with 1200 to go, I'm like, I'm going with 200 to go and I'm going to just run like nobody's business, you know? And I think I was almost more proud of that race because they had me on the rails, the top three, we had separated ourselves. And and I was starting to doubt, like, why do I need to win this? Like, I'm, I'm going to qualify, you know? Um, but when I hit that 200 meter to go Mark, it just, I just embraced the pain. I was like, okay, you promised yourself you were going to hurt here. And that led to my first national title. So I think that meet was very significant for a lot of reasons for me, like the goal of making this lifelong dream, but then also the execute, executing a race perfectly, you know, like you don't always execute, like, like I hardly ever executed it perfectly. And for <laughs> once I did. And so it just was really meaningful, both of those races. Yeah. So when we think about processing success or failure, starting with success, cause that was a success. What do you do? How do you celebrate? How do you internalize? Do you let yourself do that? Are you the one that's on to the next already? You're like, oh, I got this. Now I want that. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I was kind of like that, especially I was so happy for that night. Um, so happy to see my family. But then I was like, I I wanna, I wanna have those screams for me in the 5,000, you know? So I really was immediately looking towards the next next race. Um but that was also an unusual circumstance where I have another race. The prelim is just in a few days, right? So there was something big to be gained really close to that race. But I, I, when I look back, I wish I would have appreciated what I was doing more along the way. I think elite athletes are always like, okay, I did this. Now I need that. And I wish I had like just taken like a pause, a half day pause here and there to be like, holy crap, like I'm going to the Olympics. Like this is something that I've dreamt about my entire life. And like, this is actually happening, you know, but I didn't really do that. It was like into the next thing. Now I got to train because I want to win a medal there. It's like just steamroll through. And I, I wish I hadn't been like that. It's okay to get super motivated and want more, but I wish I had just like like literally taking like a half day and been like, Oh my God, I'm going to the Olympics. You know what I mean? yeah. Like this is so more, cool. Come on. More than a half day, Kara. I mean, <laughs> yeah. For- yeah. It's like a, a year. I don't know. But like, I <laughs> wish I had given myself a little bit of like celebration time and just like acknowledgement that, yeah, I accomplished this and yeah. this and, and then move on to the next goal. Yeah. I tell people like, give yourself at least a week, you know, when you get something massive to just let it, process. And I understand the reasons why we were on to the next because we're excited and we're eager and we're like, oh, if I can do this, I can do that. And so we're mm-hmm. already thinking ahead. But 
as a coach, having watched this so many times, I think it's so important to have that mental space to celebrate, not just so that you can recognize what you've accomplished and how amazing that is. I mean, you set that goal when you were in middle school and you got it, you know, however many years later, that's amazing. But also, I think we all need that, that mental break in a sense from being on it relative to chasing a goal. Because when you go from one to the next without that mental break, just to exhale and be like, oh man, I got it. Okay, let me just reset, you know, take a moment, take a beat. And before you jump into the next, planning for the next, then it's so much easier to sustain that energy and momentum and that mental focus that it is required to chase these things. Yeah, I agree. You're a good coach. (laughs) I I was having this text conversation with an athlete who raced this past Sunday, had an amazing day. And today it's Tuesday. She was asking me already about the next race. I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) We don't get to do that. We're going to pause and enjoy this because you crushed it on Sunday. So yes, that's a tip for me on, on responding to a win. But what about the other side? What about failure? What did you learn about processing failure? You know, I think at an early age, my mom would be like, it's okay to be sad, you know, take a day or whatever. You worked really hard for that goal. You didn't get it. Be sad. And then when you're ready, set your goal on something else, you know, like re- refocus on a new goal. And I, I learned that pretty early on from her. And I think that really did help me. Um, my mom would say like, you like mourn it, you know, and I would, I would like cry and just be like depressed, but then I would kind of get it out of my system. And then I would start to get really excited about something else. But I do think it's okay to wallow a little bit because the effort is so much, you know, like the, the buildup, the emotional component of it, the physical component of it, the saying no to different things with your friends because you're focused on this thing. And then when it doesn't happen, it's okay to be like, you know, like, it's okay to be like, that's really disappointing. I remember when I was younger, I'd be like, Oh, it was a dream that died. And that seems like really dramatic, but also super on par for teenage Kara. But, um, it was, it was like a dream that died. And I had to kind of like accept that before I could move on to a new, to a new dream. One thing's one thing I always appreciated about you and your career, which not everybody appreciated was your willingness to be so open about your emotion especially in the immediate aftermath. You know, you've had a a lot of interviews post-race when you didn't get what you wanted, where you were very straightforward about how you were feeling. There were tears, there was emotion coming. And that, especially at the time, wasn't as common. Now I think you see more of that, more willingness to accept where people are and, and let them open up like that. But in, in your time, it really wasn't. And often you were criticized. And I think about 2014 in New York, when you were clearly devastated at that finish line and they're throwing mics in your face and you're crying and emotional. And I, I think you got backlash for how you responded. So what did you learn about sharing that emotion? You know, the first time I like really cried openly was Boston 2009 and I couldn't stop. And like my circle was like, Kara, button it up until you get inside. And I just couldn't like the more they said that the harder I cried. And that day there was like a, um, like a thing you could vote on runner's world, like seeing Kara cry. Did you mourn with her? Do you think she's a crybaby? I mm-hmm. mean, 
And it was like really hard for me to see that because what was the vote? Um, I don't know. I don't remember. I just remember being <laughs> like shocked that, that, even ask that I was like shocked that people yeah. were like debating if I was a spoiled brat or not, you know. Um, yeah. And then again in 2014, you know, like I had left my sponsor. I had moved. I had left my dream home, my friends, everything that had been my home for the last 10 years to try to start over to this long-term goal of making the 2016 team and things fell apart really bad. And yeah, again, I was, I just, I wasn't really probably in a, in a mental space where I should be interviewed anyway, but also like that's real. And that's how a lot of us feel. And one thing I, I really started to embrace was like a lot of people cry. Like, I don't like, I cry. I've cried my whole life. I remember crying being young and crying at a Christmas Folgers commercial because like the son came home mm -hmm. from the military and they didn't know, like she woke up to the coffee smell and it was her son. <laughs> and, and I was like, wait, what is this? You know, like, yeah. why am I crying? And my son is very, very similar. He'll get tear jerky on home improvement shows and stuff. And mm -hmm. I was embarrassed about it. But as I got older, I just started again, like we talked about at the beginning, like I feel things. So this is what happens when you feel things. Um, but yeah, of course it's embarrassing when people are debating, you know, if you're a selfish brat or if it's real or whatever it is, oh, puppy, no puppy. <laughs> um, it sucks. It sucks yeah. to have people pick you apart in that way. Yeah. And ridiculous really that that was done to you. And I do think we're better, but still there's a little bit of that where, and it's not just in media with pro professional athletes, but I think it's also even in circles with, you know, maybe people that aren't super close where it's like, if someone gets emotional, then everybody gets uncomfortable. As a coach, I see people cry all the time. And people ask me sometimes, they're like, is that awkward for you? And I cry or they'll, or people that'll cry, will be apologetic. And I'm like, no, please cry. I want you to cry because unless you show all of that emotion, then you're going to bottle it up and it's going to come right. out in some way. And probably when it comes out, it won't come out in tears. It'll come out in, in something else that's maybe more destructive. So yes, feel all the feels cry, please. You know, that's yeah. the important part of processing anything. I agree. And everyone's different. Some people don't cry that much. Some people do like it. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I've always been a crier and it was something that I was like really embarrassed about. And so at, in 2009, when I saw that poll, it was not good for me to see that poll because it was like, this is why I can't cry. This is why, because now people, you know, and, and then I eventually just moved on from it and was like, this is who I am like it or not. I'm like, I can't help that I feel, but seeing that poll was kind of like, it shut me down a little bit again of like, I really can't share. I really can't be like that because people are going to judge it in a way that makes me uncomfortable. Um, and I'm just like, now I'm like, that's so stupid. Who cares? I don't care if anyone cries. You know what right. I mean? Like usually if someone's crying, I just start crying with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your, your empathy is one reason why people connect with you. So as you think about your career, what would be a failure that, you do think back on fondly, fondly. If, if any, or at least with, you know, some positive emotion versus just the heartache. Um, I do think 2016, it's like really hard to think about that day of the Olympic trials. It's really like, ugh, I can already feel like a frog in my throat, mm. but 
I loved the buildup. It was like seriously some of the happiest times of my life. And so that's what I'm saying. Like I would do it again just because for the four months before, I was so happy. I was like working really hard. I had people that were really invested in me. I had a husband that was so invested in me. And I was like knowing that they're like, I was going to know, I would never have to question if I should have gone for it or not. Like I would, you know what I mean? Like I was living it and I was going to find out. And so that stands out as one where like the day itself was so awful. And and then it even got more awful a year or two later when I found out stuff about the race, but the buildup was just some of the happiest time of my life. And so it was like worth it, you know, it was Mm -hmm. worth it. And I'll probably always cry when I think about the finish, but the four months before that was just so amazing and positive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the mix of emotions, but that underscores the power of the journey, right? I mean, that's one thing too, I think with goal setting, especially in running where you have the race and in an ideal world, like in 2008 for you, the training, the race, everything sings and, and it's perfect. Right. But then oftentimes it's not that way. The training goes well, or you have a great experience leading up and then the race doesn't go the way you wanted. And then what? Well, I mean, you still had the journey, right? (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. so making sure that you keep perspective on the fact that it's about both and really more than I think anything that it's about the journey. The outcomes are nice. They're kind of the cherries on top, the gravy. But if you love the journey and you're surrounded by the right people doing it, then it can be amazing no matter what happens on the day. Totally. Like when I think about that, I get more emotional about how much the training meant to me Mm. than I am about the fact that I didn't get what I wanted, which was awful. But like, I almost get more emotional thinking about how much it meant to me that people gave me that opportunity and, and really gave me one last shot of, of becoming an Olympian. And the people, right? The people, I mean, that were in your corner at that time. I mean, you had the opposite of 2009, right? In oh, terms yeah. Of, in terms of that post-race experience, it wasn't like, oh, Kara, you screwed up. You got fourth. It was, Kara, we love you. You know, it didn't matter what you got. We're here for you no matter what. So that kind of shows the contrast of the right support. Yeah. That race was on a Saturday. I flew home on Monday. Tuesday, I went into my coach's offices and, like, said I needed to apologize. And they were like, for what? <laughs> they were like you know, if anyone needs to apologize, we do, we miss something along the way. And it was such a different experience, which also I feel like makes me be able to handle it better. Right. Right. Like I remember Heather going, you sound like a battered wife, you know, like, why would you apologize? Like, did you leave your heart out there? Yeah. So like, if anyone has any questions, it's like, where did we go wrong? And so that was a very, very different experience, which I think helped me to still look at it as a positive experience instead of just completely negative one. So underscoring again, surround yourself with the right people always. So as we wrap, I want to ask you at least one final question. So you said in your quote, sometimes a broken heart is better than being too afraid to try. As I read that, I agree with you, but I also thought, you know, if I pressed her, she'd probably say that sometimes is underselling it and that 
most of the time a broken heart is worth it. Can you think of a time that it wasn't? No, Chris, I can't. <laughs> okay. I can't. That you're and that's the thing. Like it's it's almost always worth it. I actually can't think of a time where it wasn't worth it. Even in that like New York race where I ran like an idiot, like <laughs> at least I got my Olympic trials qualifier and at least I got like a disastrous race out of the way, you know, like it's living your life wondering if you should have tried something that to me feels like hell on earth. Always wondering. That was the thing. I could have retired when I left Nike and it would have been fine, but I needed to know, Hey, if I give myself one more shot, could I do this where my son could go to the Olympics and my son would understand what he was watching. I have to know, I have to find out. And you know, it, that was more important to try and fail than to always wonder and to let fear keep me out from trying, you know, you just, you got to try because that wondering, oh, that's a million times worse, a million times worse. No doubt. That's a good final word, Kara. We're going to wrap it right there. So just go dream and try. Kara said so. So thanks. Said so. thanks, Chris. <laughs> thanks, Kara. This is awesome. <laughs> there you go. Kara Goucher, everyone. As she said, just go try it. You won't regret it, no matter the outcome. So that's it for this episode. Thanks again to Athletic Greens and Zencaster for sponsoring this one. I will put those offers in the show notes so you can check those out. Also, if you'd like to learn more about Rogue Running, you can go to our website, roguerunning.com or check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Rogue Running. You can also follow me on Instagram at Rogue Chris. That's a wrap for this one. We'll talk to you next time.